Good morning. Will you pray with me? Lift up our hearts, lift up our minds, and let thy grace be given that while we live on earth below, our treasure, treasure be in heaven. Now may the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, for Jesus' sake. Amen. In the year that Saigon fell, I was turning 18, and I had some decisions to make. Turning 18 in that year meant I had to register for the draft. And I was debating at the time whether or not I would need to register as a conscientious objector because of my Christian faith. After all, my mother was a Mennonite. And so I might, in my desire to find God's purpose for my life, I wasn't sure if I could include, if that could include, fighting in a war. But I knew that if I made that declaration, I had friends in high school who would not do the same. And they would have to sign up for the lottery, and they could face the draft and have to go to Vietnam to fight. And I felt then a strong sense that then if, I did, if they did go, that I should somehow support them. But I never had to decide. Because when I went into the post office to register, they told me that the draft was over. So I went to college to study electronic engineering. But years later, I decided there wasn't a lot of future in electronics, so uh, I became a pastor. <laughs> so as a pastor in Washington State, I watched as members of my youth group went off to join the military. And I wondered, I have cared for their spiritual health for all these years, and now they're going away into this military organization. Shouldn't someone be willing to go with them and continue to provide ministry? Should I be willing to go? Maybe you can see why I am drawn to this uh, particular, particular passage read today read today and sung so well as well. The Judeans were already in difficult times. They had neglected the worship of God. In fact, they had forgotten and forsaken God altogether. Their leaders were corrupt. Greed and arrogance ruled the day, and there was little hope for righteousness or justice, particularly for those who were poor. But King Uzziah was a bit of a bright spot. Finally, a king was adding some stability and served for many years, but he has now died. And in this year that Uzziah dies, the prophet Isaiah experiences a dramatic call from God. He sees God on his throne, high and lofty, with a robe that fills the temple. And angels of incredible description surround God and offer a cacophony of praise to God. The thresholds shake. The temple fills with smoke. I think the choir did a good job of representing that. What has always, I, I don't know if you've experienced this, as growing up, for me, the Wizard of Oz 
played once a year. And we would, did that happen for you too? And we would gather in front of the TV to watch The Wizard of Oz. And there were two points in that, in that movie that scared me the most. And one was the, the side of the flying monkeys taking off. But the other was the approach to the great and powerful Oz. And in that approach, I, well, I'm, I'm kind of reminded of it here, in fact. <laughs> giant pillars, a, a giant throne, a face hovering above it, smoke billowing out the sides and fire and flames coming as well. There are no angels in that view. But I can't help but think that the, the people that designed that scene weren't inspired by this passage. And if I think of seeing God in a moment, I don't know what I would do. What would you do? Isaiah is clearly wowed. I am not worthy. Woe is me. I've seen God, and yet I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. I am unclean. Truthfully, I think Isaiah did better than I imagine I would. I don't know. I think I would have just stood there with my mouth like this. <laughs> I haven't seen God speak that clearly to me. But, but Isaiah is not driven to silence. He speaks up. And Isaiah's action is to declare his unworthiness. He owns it. But God has a plan for that, and a seraph takes a burning coal from the altar of sacrifice and applies it to his lips, cleansing him of all sin. And then God speaks. Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? This is the moment. Now he could say, I don't speak so well, why don't you use Aaron? That was tried before. Or, um, I'll ask around. Or he could just turn and run. Remember how intimidating this scene must be. Remember the cowardly lion when the wizard said, go, ran down the hallway and out through the window. How do we feel when we are faced with something that seems too hard, too difficult, too challenging? Do we run from it, or do we step up? Isaiah does not retreat. He, and why? Because he's convinced that he's forgiven. He took that story of the angel saying, I'm going to touch this to your lips and you'll be forgiven. And he believed it. And so Isaiah steps up, even if he once was not qualified, and he says, here am I, send me. The Vietnam War, an assassination of an admired leader, tragic loss of astronauts, September 11th, devastating hurricanes and earthquakes. Many of us can relate to dramatic events during our lifetimes that affected us deeply. And for some, that was the moment to respond, make a change, go a different way. Some of the sailors that I worked with 
in my 30 years as a Navy chaplain. The first ones came into a peacetime Navy. But by my second deployment, which was in my second year, we were at war. Many of the sailors I've known came in following the tragic events of September 11th. People have joined the military as an answer to our country's call. They came from my church, they came from your church, and they came from no church at all. Some came to serve because of the draft, but all of those who joined after the mid-70s were volunteers. And those who served honorably, regardless of how they entered the service, deserve our recognition for their sacrifice and their devotion to duty. Less than 1% of the total population of our country serves. And if you include all veterans who have served and those currently serving, that still totals only 7% of our total population. That means that 93% do not have first-hand knowledge of what those veterans face. And even the veterans whose record does not indicate honorable service may deserve care or treatment more than remediation, and in some cases, correction of the record. For some were undoubtedly coping the best they could with the horrors inflicted upon them. These service members face life and death questions and issues and actions daily, whether in training or deployed in the support of our country's interests. And those who serve endure not only the arduous duty of military, but all the normal stresses of life here on earth that we all endure. When they are serving far from home, who will bring them comfort? in distress, guidance when the issues they face are cloudy, and who will speak peace to them when war is all around. If you send a chaplain, they have entree that many pastors rarely experience. First, nearly the entire military population is a young adult group. They are. Even if these young people have wandered from the church, they're in the military. And that's the ages that we minister to. But this is the hallmark of what we chaplains value most. We go with them. We are embedded. We are a part of ship's company. We, we get where they are much like Fred Rogers <laughs> spoke to children where they were. We met the sailor and the soldier and the airman where they were. We go through everything they go through. Go through. Not the fighting, of course, because we are non-combatants, but every other element of heading toward the conflict rather than running away from it. We call this Ministry of Presence. Now, a church pastor has an impact on the city. 
but we are the city's chaplain. You see, a ship is very much like a, like a small city, whether it's a crew of 350 or five or 6,000 on an aircraft carrier, we are a small city. And the chaplain is the city's chaplain. Here's how that works. We provide worship and sacraments for all who care, when we're a Presbyterian chaplain, for all who claim the Presbyterian heritage, and often any who call themselves Protestants. And we have complete freedom in that. We speak within our understanding of our ordination. But we also arrange for support of all the other faith groups that are identified within the ship. And we find ways to support their needs uh, to, to be a part of their faith community. But the third thing we do is we care for all. Care for all. Churched, non-churched, non-faith. We are their chaplains still. And we also advise even the commanding officer in areas related to morale and ethics and faith. We call it our big four. We provide ministry, we facilitate for others, we care for all, and advise the command. Now, care can look like a lot of different things. Christmas Eve, 1989, the ship is underway in the Persian Gulf. So the supply folks tear up a cargo pallet and rebuild it into a manger. And they place it in the fork truck passageway where we've set up hundreds of chairs and we have an electronic piano. And I get to lead a Christmas Eve service preaching peace come to a war-torn world. Or Easter morning, most of the crew gathered on the forecastle, which is the, the deck at the bow of the ship, for a sunrise service under hazy skies. The chaplain often gets blamed for the weather, but uh, sometimes we get credit. During the message of the sun conquering death, the clouds part and a beam of sunshine bathes us, and to top it off, there's a water spout off to the starboard. You can't make this stuff up. Actually, maybe you can, but I'm not. But weekly was a bit of a different story. A small group of people who were comfortable with the service that I offered. A few more attended the Roman Catholic lay-led service. But when the community needed care, or when war was declared, it was to the chaplain that they turned. But there were other times that I got to preach peace to an audience of one. Like the sailor, who might be responsible for the death of another sailor due to poorly maintained equipment. Or even the sailor who came by my office before we got underway to tell me he doesn't need me or my religion, and his group marriage is the way to go, and uh, being free of the rules of religion have allowed them to live this way. But then months into the deployment, the same young man was at my door asking chaplain what went wrong. We have entree that not everyone does. 
And who is the only visitor allowed when an unrepentant sailor is remanded to bread and water? Or who will be with them when the medical team in Antarctica had to continue life-saving measures until a colleague found at the foot of an ice cliff with severe injuries was warm before ending their efforts so he could be pronounced dead? Who will go for us? I did. Alex is about to. Who goes? I'll tell you. Navy chaplains and Army chaplains and Air Force chaplains, not to mention Veterans Affairs chaplains, Federal Bureau of Prisons chaplains, who provide very similar support. These chaplains come from all different faith groups, and we work together as colleagues. Many Christians support our military, and their churches are more than willing to send chaplains. In fact, many of their chaplaincy candidates are actually attracted to the military. But here's the challenge we face. Presbyterians are for peace. That's not the bad part. And it's not that those other churches don't also seek peace. But our striving for peace can cause us to reject the military altogether. For a number of years, Presbyterian seminaries did just that. Some who advocate for peace fear even the support of sending sending a chaplain is an attempt to bless bullets and bombs. That is not our job. We are there to bless the people who serve our nation to care for them, to help answer their hardest questions in times of distress and ambiguity, to support their faith when it's needed the most. Many people see service to their country as a response to God's call. We need chaplains who are for peace to guide them. We need peace churches to train up chaplains. We need more reformed-minded chaplains to support our service members, to care for them, and to guide them. We need Presbyterians. And we need Presbyterian churches to train up those who will go with them. The Presbyterian Federal Chaplaincies, which is the council I co-direct, provides to the services chaplains who are prepared to care for those called to serve. What can you do for us? The first thing I would ask is pray for us. And then I would ask that you train up those who can answer that call, as I see you are already doing. But I also ask that you would support the council who recruits, equips, enables, sustains, and celebrates Presbyterian chaplains. I ask that you support them both in prayer and with your financial giving as well. Isaiah was sent to his people to continue to speak God's truth to them throughout the many difficult times they would face. Our loved ones serve. We don't like the battles they are sent to. We need to hold our government accountable. But for those who respond to the call, someone needs to be sent to them. Who will go for us? And who will make sure they are prepared? Here are you.
Amen.